coming from uh, a family of soccer players, and Corey and I taking our turns over the years of coaching our kids' soccer teams, uh, we continue to laugh out loud at the 2005 film Kicking and Screaming. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's ridiculous. But uh, in the movie, Will Ferrell, of course, ridiculous, right? S- he, he stars as this guy named Phil Weston, who's this mild-mannered, suburban dad who owns and operates a vitamin supply store, like totally boring dude, right? And his son, Phil, uh, his, his, his son Sam is like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. They never really say, I don't think. But he's at 10 or 12 years old, and he plays soccer, and he's on his grandfather's soccer team. His grandfather, Buck Weston, is played by Robert Duvall. So just like picture Robert Duvall, and he's this tough-as-nails, uber-competitive guy, such that his grandson Sam never even makes it onto the field. He benches his own grandson because he's not good enough, apparently, to win games. And then he tries trades his own grandson to the worst team in the league. Now, when Sam's dad, Will Ferrell's character, finds out about this, he has this panic attack, this PTSD flashback of how his dad treated him. Not knowing what else to do, Phil Weston says, you know what, son? I'm going to coach your team. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to coach with the ideals of we're going to have fun and we're going to be encouraging. And his whole idea was through those ideals, we're not only going to be a winning team, but we're going to show grandpa that you can win in different ways than being uber competitive. Good plan. So he, he, he tries to get the kids to do what they want. One kid's eating a worm and uh, passing gas and all the stuff that kids do at 10 to 12 years old. Uh, and so he realizes he's quickly out of his league, like he's doubting his ability. So he gets a ringer. He goes to his dad's nemesis, Mike Ditka, played by Mike Ditka. Uh, and, and so uh, Mike Ditka and, and Robert Duvall's character do not get along at all. And Ditka brings in two things to the team. One, some discipline, right? So the kids start to play better. And two, he introduces Phil Weston to coffee. (laughs) To coffee, right? So uh, as the team begins to win, this mild-mannered vitamin salesman, Phil, begins to get a little more and more full of himself and a little more and more full of caffeine. He turns into this egotistical tyrant. He recruits these Italian kids from the local butcher shop, and what once was this encouraging, fun environment on his team is now just, pass it to the Italians! And if you have to, break that kid's clavicle. And that's a quote from line. Anyway, so it becomes this train wreck of a team. But they keep winning. They make it into the championship game where Phil is playing his own dad in the championship. But things are going horrible. His team is afraid of him. His own son is now sitting on the bench of his team because he wants to win so bad. And at halftime, they're in trouble. And at halftime, Phil's son, Sam, this 10 to 12-year-old boy, has a talk man-to-man, mano a mano. And he gently but directly reminds his dad of the ideals that he had started with, encouragement and fun and joy of playing the game. And at that moment, Phil realizes what a jerk he's been. And he receives the wisdom of his son, and he changes his way. Through Sam's wise words of reality and conviction, Phil responds with what we would call repentance. He turns from his arrogance, he apologizes to the team, he gets back to what made the team great in the beginning, and of course they all live happily ever after, and they win the game, and there's a lot more funny things that happen. I can't actually in good faith recommend the film. It's not that great, but I find it funny. (laughs) (laughs) So the the wisdom of Sam offered hope 
to his struggling father. His father's acceptance and application of that wisdom saved him from really destroying the team and, and, and probably his marriage and all of his relationships. The gathering and application of wisdom is a common biblical theme. When we think of the Bible and wisdom, we often think of what Emily just read from the book of Psalm, or uh, Proverbs, which is you know, a, collect- a collection of wisdom sayings. But wisdom is lifted up as an essential ingredient to health, healthy human flourishing with God. And, and it's done that uh, all throughout Scripture, from Job and the Psalms and Proverbs to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Now this evening, we're going to continue our journey through the book of 1 Samuel. And in that story, uh, in, the, in the place where we're engaging with it, David has been anointed king by Samuel the prophet which was under the instruction of God, okay? But there's this problem. The current king, Saul, who was also previously anointed by God, is still very much alive and is hunting David down. In the previous chapter, um, what happened is that David had Saul in his sights. He had, he had an opportunity to kill him, and he spares his life, not willing to kill the Lord's anointed. But in chapter 25, where we're going to be rooted this evening, we'll see the situation get a bit more complicated. David is going to face his, t- his toughest challenge yet, his own fears and his own grief. And in the story, we're going to encounter wisdom, and the way he responds to that wisdom is going to set the trajectory for the rest of his career. Now, as I've been trying to do over the last few weeks, I'm going to walk us through the text in bite-sized sections. And I'm going to unpack some of the context while also trying to point out some of the life-giving good news along the way. But in particular, as we walk through the chapter uh, 25, I want you to pay attention to the juxtaposition between wisdom and folly. That's, I think, at the center of the text. We'll begin with the first nine verses. This is 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 9. Now, Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. When David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that are yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time we were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward me and my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited very first sentence of this chapter, did you catch that Samuel has died? I mean, the guy who the whole book is named after dies 
25 chapters into the book, and he gets one sentence. That sort of seems weird on the surface, but if you know Samuel and you followed him throughout these, these chapters, it doesn't quite sound as weird as it does at, at first. Samuel had been all about the work of the Lord. He's called by the Lord as a young person, and he served the Lord faithfully throughout his life. He was the king maker. He was the king breaker. And one of Samuel's biggest accomplishments was being chosen by God to anoint David as king. Through Samuel's ministry, David was on the trajectory to accomplish God's will for Israel and for the entire world. So from a literary point of view, Samuel's abrupt departure does two things for us as a reader. It passes this metaphorical baton on to David. No longer is there a Samuel to kind of be the covering over this. This is David now taking the baton and running it with it, okay? And the second thing that it does is it provides some tension to the story. Samuel's gone, who used to intercede for God on David's behalf and on behalf of the kings. Now what? Now, for a moment, put yourself in David's shoes. Samuel is gone. Saul is still king and trying to kill you. You have 600 loyal men willing to die for you, but they're also encouraging you at every turn to just kill Saul and get it over with. What would you do? Where would you turn? God, at this point, hasn't directly given you any orders except for the promise that one day you'll be king. And he says over and over again that you're the chosen one, but so what? Like, what do I do now? How do you wait well in that kind of pressure cooker, knowing that you're supposed to be king someday, but the current king keeps trying to kill you, and the one guy you could count on to tell you what's up with God, Samuel, is dead? I imagine that David is stricken with grief over the loss of Samuel. I imagine that he has doubts over his calling and questions about what to do next. And in that state of mind of unknowing, David travels to this desert region of Paran where he can kind of hide out, maybe get his bearings a little bit. And it's here that we're introduced to two people, a wealthy man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. Nabal's name in Hebrew literally means fool. Now, what mother names her kid that, right? Like, is that really, like, his name? Now, some people think that uh, later on, as the people are compiling these stories, that the, the, the biblical authors maybe gave him the name Nabal to kind of carry the story along and make a point. That's an option. Another option is that the root of the word Nabal, if you put a little, just slightly different endings on it, could mean things like guitar or pitcher, like pitcher of water, not like baseball. So, so what, what I'm saying is Nabal could mean other things than just fool, like hey, pitcher or guitar. Maybe his grandfather was a famous guitar player like Coco or something, and he's just named after that. Anyway, the point is that we will soon find out that Nabal is very much a fool. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, He was a wealthy man, but he was mean. His wife, on the other hand, is described as both intelligent and beautiful. Abigail, that word literally means my father is joyous, meaning like she brings joy to people. Her beauty and intelligence, she is an incredible human being. What the narrator tells us in advance about Nabal being a fool and Abigail being fantastic, David will find out as the story unfolds. But at this point, he doesn't know any better. 
and he hears that it's sheep shearing time. And for the people of ancient Palestine, sheep shearing was this weeks-long season of hard work and hard partying. People would bring their cattle in, their sheep in, from all over the pasture lands. They would come to places like Carmel, like in this story, and they would set up you know, do the work of the actual shearing, and then they would have marketplaces where, where buyers of wool would buy, and then in the evenings, they would, they would share food together, and they would share wine together, and it could get quite crazy and out of control, but it was just a cultural, just a high point in the year. It's like a harvest-type season. For his part, David has a double claim to Nabal's hospitality. First, he and his men had encountered Nabal's shepherds and their flocks out in the fields many times before, and they always treated them well and gave them protection. Right? Second, even if David had done none of those good things for Nabal and his, sheep, uh, and his shepherds, it was simply the custom in the ancient Near East, as it is today in much, many parts of the Near East, to extend hospitality to travelers. I mean, David and his men are weary, they're out in there, and there's, it's sheep-shearing time, it's party time, and so it would have been expected to give some sort of food and lodging to David and his men. So that's the story, how it sets up. Let's now see what happens. Verses 10 through 13. An ominous dun-dun-dun in the background. Nabal answers David's servants, Who's David? Who is this (laughs) son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. And When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. What's interesting is that Saul, who's been at the forefront, the protagonist kind of, or antagonist, chasing David in the stories right up to this chapter, Saul doesn't even feature in chapter 25. But when Nabal responds to David's request with, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Have you heard those words before? Yeah, Saul has said that twice now in 1 Samuel already. We're led to hear Saul's voice, who himself has parroted these words. So in some ways, this fool Nabal is a type of Saul in this story. And how David responds to Nabal is likely how he's going to respond to Saul later on. As things are going, it does not look good. Like David, the shepherd boy who defeated Goliath with faith in God and a sling and a stone, the man who wouldn't kill Saul a chapter ago when he had him in his sights in a vulnerable position, is now calling his men to strap on their swords and go get the business done. So with Samuel gone, and David feeling like there's no one to guide him, his choices show he is in desperate need of wisdom. Nabal's a fool, but if David continues on this path, he'll be a godless fool as well. Verses 14 through 22. One of the servants of Nabal 
told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and the whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one could talk to him. Now Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go ahead, I will follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. And David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. It's a shocking scene. On the one hand, we see in Abigail, Lady Wisdom personified. Abigail isn't just a woman who makes one good choice in this story. She has such a reputation for wisdom that even her husband's servants, when there's a crisis, they don't go to him, they go to her. They know that he's a fool and that his choices have put actions in motion that could spell destruction for their whole household, their whole clan, all, everybody. Abigail is shrewd. And while her husband is off drinking and eating away his wealth, Abigail is leveraging that same wealth to hopefully stay the hand of David by rallying all of these delicious cakes and food and wine to bring to him. Now, even more shocking, though, is David's course of action. You know, he's been insulted by Nabal, absolutely, but now he's disclosed his intent to not only kill Nabal, but to wipe out every male in the whole clan. That means servants, that means children, that means elders, everybody. David, who was just chapters ago the righteous fugitive on the run from Saul, has decided to turn into raider and avenger and destroyer. Now, he might be doing what is quite acceptable in the ancient Near East, in the, in the, you know, in the minds of a bandit, or in, in, to the mind or the, the ways of a regional warlord, but if he follows through with this, he will be in the same camp as Nabal. So let's find out what he does in verses 23 through 31. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention to my lord, that wicked man Nabal, He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that, you're, that you sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and you live since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. 
And let this gift, which your servant has brought to you, be given to the men who follow you. Please, forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living uh, by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Oh, she's crafty. I love her. Turn a phrase. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And then the Lord your God has brought my Lord success. Remember your servant. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a moment. It's so good. So I mentioned before that Abigail is sort of this lady wisdom personified. You know, in the Proverbs, wisdom is sometimes uh, spoken of as a, as a female voice or as a woman, okay? Uh, this section is why I say that Abigail is lady wisdom personified. I see three principles of wisdom in play. So if you're lost in the narrative and you want something to take notes on, here would be the three uh, principles of wisdom that I'm, I'm seeing in the text. First, Abigail embodies the wisdom of a peacemaker, right? Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become the children of God, the sons and daughters of the living God. Abigail could have totally run off with her children to her father's country and left Nabal to his own demise. She could have rallied the troops of the surrounding sheep herders and all of Nabal's men. She could have warned them and said, hey, David's coming with his dudes, let's fight. There's there's other things that that Abigail could have done. But instead of turning uh, to disengagement, running away, or turning to violence and war like she could have done, instead, she becomes a peacemaker. The scripture reading tonight was from Proverbs 15, and it begins like this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Abigail doesn't come to David to scold him. Oh, she had full right to. You gonna come mess with my family? She doesn't come to scold him. She comes to win him over. She brings gifts. She humbles herself. She's kind and respectful, but she's bold and speaks her mind. Abigail serves as an agent of shalom in a very messed up situation. She knows that God is with David and that somehow her fate is wrapped up in David's fate. She risks facing her fears. I mean, you just get this. She comes down into the valley, right? She's in the valley of, uh, of this place and it said that David and his men were descending on her. Imagine what that would be like. You're a woman with a couple servants and donkeys with food and 400 armed men are coming towards you who want to kill your family. She takes a risk. You know, we live in such a polarizing time that it's almost an instant reflex for most of us to get defensive in the, pa- in the face of opposition. We're masters We're masters at disengagement, separating into our factions, and then when we're with people like ourselves, then we take shots at the other side, on social media, 
uh, or other places where we feel safe. And then there's the other extreme, which is almost worse, and that's the phenomenon of ghosting other people, right? Like just walking out of their life. Rather than engage in dialogue, people more than ever simply disengage, abruptly leaving a friendship or a church or a marriage or workplace. The cost of working things out seems too steep, so we just, we just walk away. Abigail realized that her life is wrapped up in David because David is God's anointed. Now, what if we began to realize that the goal of all of this, like the goal of the coming kingdom of God itself, is for relationship? That when Jesus returns and brings his new kingdom, it's going to be a kingdom of diverse relationships. What if we took seriously that true peace isn't achieved by siding with my kind of person while avoiding another, but in actively working for peace together? So the first principle of wisdom we see here is that Abigail works as a peacemaker. The second principle of wisdom is that Abigail embodies reality. Reality. David, is in a, he's in a place of delusion, we don't know why. I mean, I will always tell you as an exegete, never psychologize a passage, but let's just do that for a minute. Uh, maybe it's his grief. I mean, he's just lost Samuel. He's got, like, no one to guide him. Like, maybe it's his grief. Maybe it's his fear. Maybe frustration over how long God is taking to accomplish his plan. Like, he got anointed when he was a kid, then he served in Saul's army as a commander. Now he's on the run from Saul. It's been like several years. He's married a couple people by now, and he's got kids, and when's this going to happen? Maybe it's his band of riffraff that he's put together, these 600 dudes who are from surly lifestyles themselves. Maybe they're putting pressure on him to just be a man of action. Whatever it is, David's not seeing clearly because the guy who's going to be the king for Yahweh can't be slicing people up for social slights. But we've all kind of been there, haven't we? Like maybe you've never strapped a sword on to, to kill someone. Uh, but we get prideful. And that prevents us from seeing straight because maybe we're reading our own press. Or conversely, we get discouraged and our emotions take us really low. Or we get hurt by someone many, maybe multiple times. And we get bitter and angry and jaded and we lash out. Part of the role of wisdom is to hold up a mirror to us and to say this is who you really are. Abigail is wisdom personified when through a most well-crafted speech, she reminds David who he really is. You are God's anointed. You're his chosen one. You're righteous. She reminds him that it wouldn't be becoming of God's anointed to take the lives of innocent people over a fool like Nabal. The blood on his hands, if he would have done that, would have been a stain he just couldn't get rid of. And so Abigail reminds David of the reality of who he is and the reality of who God is, which is the, the third principle of wisdom I see here. Wisdom reminds us that the future your future is in God's hands. 
right? God has been faithful to David, and he will be faithful to his promises to David. God has been faithful to his people, and he will continue to be faithful to his people. Jesus has been faithful to come and to die, and to defeat death, and to ascend, and to be faithful to usher you who have faith in him into his kingdom. That's who you are. That's your future in Christ. So you don't have to make the future happen. You you don't have to walk over people in your life to get your way. Wisdom reminds us that the future is not a problem to solve. It's a future to live into. The future is not a problem to solve. It is a future to live into because it's God's. Now for all the wisdom in the world, and those are three wisdom principles, right? Peacemaker, reality, and reminding that God is the God of the future. He, the future is his. For all the wisdom in the world, it still takes a response to make any of it matter. If you know the story of David's future son Solomon, you'll know that he asked God for wisdom and God made him the wisest man on the earth. And, and yet, simply knowing God and knowing lots of stuff about lots of stuff didn't prevent Solomon from going completely off the rails. How could someone so wise go completely south like that? Because he didn't listen to the wisdom. He didn't let it change his life and his behavior and his thought patterns. So let's see how David responds in verses 32 through 55. So Abigail has just gave this wise speech to him humbled herself, and this is what David says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she brought to him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and I've granted your request. Wisdom is always a two-way street. In the Proverbs of Scripture, there are multiple warnings not to engage fools in argument, not to waste wisdom on them because part of the definition of being a fool is that they're unwilling to listen to any voice other than themselves and their echo chamber, their yes men and women, right? In this passage, David shows himself wise by receiving the wisdom of Abigail. He shows himself wise in two main ways, okay? The first is that he recognized Abigail's intervention as God's intervention. And he gives thanks. He gives thanks. Have you ever had someone intervene in your life and realize that their advice or their words prevented you from doing something really stupid? I have. Maybe it was a word from Scripture that someone gave to you or that you read or the Lord put on your heart and you're like, oh, I've been so foolish. By giving praise to God, he both gives worship to God and he blesses Abigail by acknowledging her role as an agent of God. 
That's significant, by the way, because being an agent of God is pretty much the fullest definition of what it is to be fully alive as a human being. You and I are created in God's image as his agents in the world. And when we get the privilege of being an agent of God, that's what makes us fully alive. The truly wise give thanks for correction and conviction because they know it's God's way of preserving them and preserving the people around them. So ask yourself, just ask yourself, is your usual disposition to become offended when confronted by wisdom or correction from others? Or can you see it as a vessel um, or, or see that person giving it as a blessing from God. I mean, just, we all know kind of our knee-jerk reaction. Second, and most importantly, David changes his mind. He gives thanks for the good advice, for the wisdom, but then he actually changes his mind. In Bible talk, that's literally repentance. Like, that's, this, this story, like, so illustrates repentance. If you have a course of action set in your brain, your mind is made up. You've, you've even made practical choices like strapping on your sword and getting all amped up to go fight. Uh, but in light of incoming conviction or wisdom, it, it's choosing to change your course of action. That's repentance. That's like the definition of it. And here we say a great example. Now, now just consider this for a moment. David had formed a posse. He was tooled up, as they say in the gangster shows. His boys were were jacked and ready to throw down with navel at this feast. And they're looking forward to, like, we're going to come in and kick some butt. And then the food's already made, and the wine is abundant. I mean, they're already thinking past how easy this is going to be and the spoils of war. And this is, all his dudes are happy. They're ready for this. It would not have been an easy decision for David to change his own mind let alone suffer the shame of telling his 400 men, because remember, he's going to leave two behind, 200 behind, telling 400 dudes who are ready to fight, uh, hey, this lady came from the family, and uh, she had some good advice, and I'm weighing it, and I'm, I think I'm going to change my mind, like we're not going to go fight and get like free stuff. Like, just take it out of a biblical context for a minute, and say you are leading a project at work, and you've had this team working on it for months, and you've spent money, uh, and then you see that maybe the product that you're about ready to release and put out has a flaw in it, might hurt someone. Oh, it's not going to go over well. What is the right thing to do? That's repentance. That's wisdom in action. David counts the cost. And he realizes that the shame in carrying out his original plan would be far worse than just appearing to waffle and waver in front of his 400 men or 600 men. Changing direction, it's oftentimes, almost always costly. Following the wisdom and responding to the conviction of God will cost, but the benefits, I mean, come on, far outweigh the cost. Will we have courage to respond with obedience and to trust when the wisdom of God calls us to make costly choices, costly choices that might make us turn around from a course of action that we've been banking on or had our hearts set on? 
And this is, by the way, just a little side note, this is why I like, oh, and all the graduation speeches when they just say, follow your heart. Like, no, my heart is so corrupt. Like, follow your heart and other, like, wisdom and, like, other stuff because just the heart is gonna get you in a lot of bad places, but okay. <laughs> in the final part of the chapter, which I'm just not gonna read for the sake of time, Abigail uh, tells Nabal, once he's sobered up, of her dealings with David. And he's like, I don't know if he's like betrayed or what he's feeling. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. All I know is that it says his heart stopped and he was like a stone for 10 days. So maybe he had a stroke. I mean, all these conjecture about what actually happened, but he's just like not well for 10 days. And then the narrator tells us that the Lord took Nabal's life. Right? The Lord struck him down and he died. You know, as the future king, David would have to learn that judgment, even from the most, against the most nasty people, is not his prerogative. Judgment is God's deal, okay? And we would do so well, so well to remember that as well. It's not your job to take revenge or to judge other people. It's not my job to take revenge or to judge other people. In fact, if we grow in wisdom, I think that we're going to find that the role, like putting the role of judgment back into God's realm where it belongs, is not as hard as it is freeing. Like, who really wants to be the judge and jury of everybody else? That's an exhausting job. So, like, once again, we see how these stories in the Hebrew Scriptures can offer us I think some really great like practical principles for living today, like all that stuff if we lived an ounce better into that wisdom realm than we were when we came in, like good, like that's good for your life, that's wonderful. Um, but as I've been saying all along, the title of this series uh, in First Samuel, The Rise of the King, is not, it's not merely about these stories or David's rise to the throne. It's, it's the one that David really points to who is Jesus rising to the throne. In the beginning of the book of John, in the gospel, we read, in the beginning was the word, or the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. In the wisdom tradition, the word, or logos, was the creative essence of God that gives life. In the story we just heard, Abigail is a type of personified wisdom, helping David see reality, helping align his, his life and his will with God's will. But in, fir- in that first chapter of John, we read that the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men, women, and children, and the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overpower it. While David and Abigail point to something greater, Jesus is the tip of that point. Like, he's what they're pointing to. He's the king that 1 Samuel ultimately points toward. He is literally wisdom personified. He is God in the flesh. He is the life giver, the light and the darkness, the light of the world, the savior of all people. Now, even with Abigail's influence and wisdom, David would eventually, you just keep reading, he goes down a dark 
a dark path, Darth path. I guess that's yeah, the same thing. <laughs> and so would his sons, and so would all his descendants. You know, ultimately, that mirror of truth that wisdom gives us, it tells us something not so encouraging that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's kind of where we land with the wisdom literature stuff. And wisdom tells us that every one of us needs more than just wisdom and good advice. We need good news that there's a God who comes to rescue us. And that is the good news, brothers and sisters, of this passage, that this passage is pointing to. The beginning of wisdom for us is to trust in Jesus who forgives and makes new, who has our future secured and fills us with his wisdom life. Wisdom saves because Jesus is wisdom and Jesus saves. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the way that uh, these scriptures that are, what, 3,000 years old, this story, for the way that they can come to life for us today for still speaking both good advice and point to good news. I praise you, Holy Spirit, that you never stop encouraging us in the direction of Jesus. I thank you that in your grace and mercy you continue to convict us to remind us of our need for the Lord. And I thank you that you just as swiftly remind us of his graciousness, of his adoption of us as his children. Help us, help us, Lord, when we're confronted by wisdom that contradicts a way that we've been thinking, feeling, or acting. Help us to act with humility, to be open to change, and to cast ourselves daily upon the grace of the Lord who promises his kingdom for us and the fullness of life. Amen.